0: To the marketplace. It's all rigged, or is it? Specifically, how does one go about detecting bid rigging? Here to help us understand are Jim McClave and Tom Rothrock, the inventors and developers of computerized tools to see who is cheating and who is not. Welcome to the show, Jim and Tom. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start out. Uh, Jim, I'm going to ask you, what uh, what exactly is the technology uh, that you have developed and, and are using? Uh, explain it to me, who really doesn't know that much. I took one college statistics class, so I, I kind of know, uh, but not really. So to tell, assume that our listeners don't um,
1: have a deep background in statistics. Fair enough. Um, our invention consists of uh, software, computerized techniques, statistical techniques, that looks for patterns or trends to suggest that companies may not be playing fairly, that they may be rigging bids when they submit prices to government agencies to do work for them. So it's it's basically software that makes a difference, shows a difference between competition and lack of competition.
0: So uh, t- typically, if a, a government agency or public entity puts out a project to bid, they're, they're gonna get all these bid documents, and so the, the- Concept here is that all those bid documents get fed into a program, and then the program looks for anomalies, or uh, you know, is there is there a parameter or range for each one of those numbers, and that's how it essentially works. Or is it more sophisticated?
1: Than it, that? It, it's a little more sophisticated yeah. in that if you're going to look for trends, you really need historical data. Okay. So rather than just looking at. Today's bids, we're looking at maybe five or even ten years worth of bids. And again, um, try as hard as they might. If c- companies are cheating, it-, it doesn't look like competition. So there are patterns that show up. Sometimes they're trying to hide it, but I see. Uh, we-, we figured out ways that, that look uh, around the corners and into the nooks and crannies and find uh, these patterns that suggest bid rigging.
0: Um, so, uh, I saw a great phrase, uh, I think some, one of your company documents uh, about administering statistical justice. Uh, who came up with that? That's a great
1: phrase. Uh, it was probably one of our PR people. Uh, Tom and I tend not give to that. brag about uh, what we do, we just do it. Well, but, give, uh, give
0: that guy a raise because I mean, I, I like it, statistical justice. I so, like it too. Um, uh, so, Jim, you started the company in 1977. Tom, you joined a few years later. But, um, uh, Jim, what gave you the idea? Uh, your, your You were a professor, Um, and so it's always an interesting transition, I find, from academia into the business world. Did y'all wake up one day in 1977 and say, I'm sick and tired of being a professor, I'm going to start a business, or how did it work?
1: Uh, Actually, I loved teaching, um, and uh, I got the chance from our department chairman in statistics to do some consulting, and I really liked that because it was basically teaching. And the university encouraged us to do it, but we had to keep records. And that's the sole reason I founded uh, Infotech. As far as getting into our invention and the business we're in today, you should ask Tom, because it started with him.
0: (laughs) So, Tom, uh, who found who? Did did Jim come looking for you, or did you hear what he was doing and decide to get involved?
1: After I finished
2: my Ph.D., I had several consulting opportunities with the Florida Attorney General's office. They were interested in looking at public procurement in the state of Florida to determine if they were getting good prices on things that they were procuring. And they collected a lot of data and wanted me to analyze that data for them, but they also wanted to use the University of Florida's computer system since it was freely available to them. And one of the people working in the antitrust unit had had Jim for a class and raved about how good he was and asked me if I would be willing to partner with him on this project. And so I came down here on one rainy February night, and he met me at the airport, and that started
0: our relationship that has lasted
2: now 41
0: years. So did you have that core insight from the beginning that um, – or, or was it suggested to you by the, the what, uh, what office was it in the Florida state government? It was the antitrust unit of,
2: of, of the attorney general's office. So
0: did they already uh, suspect that rigging was going on? I mean, it's not exactly a new thing, right? It's been around for centuries. But did they already think that there was a path, of, a statistical analysis path to find it? Or are you the ones that sort of said? They okay, weren't sure. They weren't sure. Uh, okay.
2: The connection there is, you know, I did my PhD dissertation in Missouri at the University of Missouri on statistical methods to detect bid rigging. Oh, that was okay. the topic of my thesis. And one of the, my student friends there took a job at the Attorney General's office and he sort of sold them on the idea that they ought to be looking because it is fairly prevalent. And so they decided to bring me in as a consultant to help them identify areas where there might be problems in bid rigging on what they were procuring.
0: Wow, that's uh, usually it's you know professors helping students, and now in this case, a student helped a professor, right? Sort of by yes. recommending. Um, uh, okay, we're going to talk about Infotech as a company a little bit later on, um, but first, I'd sort of like to hear about your background. It's always fascinating to me, sort of what what are the early influences in, in careers, and and eventually. Um, you know your inventions. So, Jim, let's start with you. Are you are you from Florida? Are you from the South? Uh, you know, where'd your parents uh, end up, and, and what were some of your early influences?
1: I uh, no, I'm not from the South. I grew up in eastern Ohio, uh, right across the river from Pittsburgh, a steel town, um, and uh, mom and dad uh, grew up there as, as well. They were high school sweethearts. Um, so. Uh, my early days were uh, in a pretty tough area. I had a love from the beginning for science and math. My dad was an entrepreneur so I think and I loved solving puzzles. That was my big deal as a kid. Uh, I remember they would buy me these books of puzzles and and so I think uh, that sort of sort of launched me on the on the path that I ended up on. And were you a good student, Jim? I mean, I, I was back then. The report cards had two sides to it. One had the grades, and the other had comportment. <laughs> and and on the grade side, I was always great. On the comportment side, there were always some U's for unsatisfactory. I I was a little talkative, I think, and too much energy.
0: And so, did your your parents just focus on the grade side, or did they immediately flip it over to the comportment uh, side?
1: They, and... they they encouraged changing those U's to S's, but I think they were happy with the grades. And Tom, how
0: about you? Where where did you grow up and, and what were you like as a kid? I grew up on a farm about
2: 50 miles west of St. Louis. It was a 300-acre farm run by my uncles, and I lived, you know, right next to the farm uh, with my grandparents and, and my mom, who was divorced, uh, you know, working, and she would drive into St. Louis every day, so I'd be there with my grandparents and my uncles, and they sort of taught me a lot about working on a farm. I did a lot of chores and and activities like that. And sort of the one hallmark there is the town had a population of about 100, and they had one school with one teacher for eight grades. So I went to a one-room schoolhouse, and as a result, I wasn't a very good student uh, because not much education really took place in that (laughs) environment. So I struggled a bit when uh, my mom remarried and we moved to St. Louis. And I struggled a bit sort of getting Acclimated to uh, you know real education and the school environment.
0: So um, both of you went into a field that is uh, you have to understand numbers, not just understand them, but sort of really uh, like the whole process. Do you remember a, a point anywhere, as a in middle school, high school, college, in which you just there's something about numbers that fascinated you? And the reason I ask is uh, we have a daughter who's an actuary. And uh, she just she likes doing things like taxes or, or balancing a checkbook or things like that. It just sort of calms her down. I'm I'm sort of the same way, by the way. Did do you remember that uh, sort of just feeling comfortable around
1: numbers at any point growing up? What I remember most is that math came easy and I loved it. I, I loved the puzzle solving part of, of math problems, and um, so I think you know it's just always part of my DNA, right from right from the beginning, uh, from the time the teachers would hold up those cards with the uh, two plus ones on it and uh, uh, you know to advanced calculus uh, just was something that was always uh, always always fascinating to me.
2: As I mentioned I sort of struggled with my uh, education but like Jim math came easy to me and so I wound up you know in college uh, choosing math as my major because it was probably the easiest subject for me to do. I you know had enjoyed the analytical reasoning and problem-solving that goes along with the mathematics.
0: So now we're going to fast forward to you're you're now involved with uh, one of the most successful companies in in the Gainesville certainly and certainly in the region, and you started out very small, tiny company really just sort of you Jim and then I presume a handful of employees, and and now you're a fairly large employer. Um, tell us a little bit what has that transition been like for you as a manager and a leader? What are are you essentially? the same guy in terms of those skill sets or have you developed them in a in a deliberate fashion knowing that you're you know responsible for a lot more people
1: I don't know I would call it deliberate fashion Uh, it certainly has evolved because it's had to Uh, you're right we started actually when I founded InfoTech it was my wife and I so it was strictly a family business she did the books and I did the consulting Uh, and it stayed when Tom joined us we were still very small and Both of us, for whatever reason, had the concept of a family culture uh, with our company. And we've really tried to uh, foster that uh, throughout. We're all in this together. We treat each other right. We treat our customers as part of our extended family. And so I think the transition, the part of the transition that's been most challenging is maintaining that culture uh, as you go from 5 to 10 to 100, now to 250 employees. Uh, but we have fought hard to do that. Um, the people that come to us that might be very bright but don't fit in that culture, don't we find don't last long. So now when we're doing interviewing, we make sure that there's a culture fit. So I think that's been the biggest challenge.
0: And I imagine you, you probably have a low – Turnover—it sounds like. I mean, a lot of employees stay for quite a long time.
1: We've—we recently had, I guess it's been a year or two now—a lunch where uh, anybody that had 30 years in, uh, and it filled the room. It was just amazing. So yes, we've got—we've got some now that are uh, above 35, and and we're only 40 years old. So, a uh, very low transition uh, turnover, turnover yeah. rate. Thank yeah,
0: you. that's that's amazing. Um, Tom, every company has highs and lows, uh, sort of big successes where you hit it out of the park and. And others uh, not so much. Uh, would you willing to share with our listeners? I know that you've had some big successes in terms of de- detecting very large amounts of cheating and, yes. and bids for uh, the state of Florida and, and maybe others. So, so tell us a little bit about those, but also uh, moments where you thought maybe uh, you know, joining Jim and his endeavor was a bad idea. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that I ever thought that. Uh, but in the early years, it was a struggle. As I think most companies and startups certainly experience a challenge the first few years as they're getting started and establishing a presence in the marketplace, getting steady customers that they can depend on. And you know, we were the same way. You're right. We had a couple big successes fairly early on. Uh, I was also a professor at UF. Uh, visiting from Wisconsin, uh, working with Jim. And we got hired by the Florida Attorney General's Office to investigate the highway construction industry because there was information that in other states there were problems with bid rigging activity going on there. There was no evidence of it, but they knew that we had the techniques that could analyze the bidding data and point them in the right direction. And we did that very successfully, and they recovered over $30 million in a few years based on our analysis and what that did is it really launched us because at that point other states were ha- having similar problems and so we wound up having to commit a lot of resources to working in that area. So that was a big success and really got the foundation and it was enough that I left the university to do this full time. And kept wanting to think about going back, but uh, Infotech kept growing, and, you know, and now I look back 40 years later, and, and here I am. But uh, a failure happened probably about three years later uh, because we were successful in developing this software and these programs, so we thought we could develop some other programs that would complement this and offer them in the commercial marketplace. So we staffed up with a team of programmers and a team of marketers. And that cost us money, and it it really drained our resources. And it turned out that even though we had excellent products, there just wasn't a market there for those products, which was a very important lesson for us, is that no matter how good your product is, if you don't have a market, you're not going to be successful.
0: And that almost caused us to go under. That That is very interesting. A, a recent guest on our show, Randy Scott, who you may know, um, said uh, one thing that he finds talking to other entrepreneurs, particularly researchers, is the first thing you have to do is fall out of love with the science and figure out what the market is. Because I think to your right. point, you know, it sounds like you had a great product, but the market wasn't there. And so that's it doesn't correct. matter how great the product is exactly nobody right. wants to buy it. yeah. That brings up an interesting question. You know, so you you developed the uh, original sort of proprietary uh, software back in the late seventies. Obviously, the world has changed a lot in terms of uh, uh, information technology and software. Um, ha- has competition increased? Are there other companies out there or softwares that sort of come close to what you're doing? Or do you still have something that is is hard for others to replicate?
1: We certainly have the product has has evolved over the years. The techniques have evolved. Uh, as I was saying early on, they, they, uh, those that are out there trying to cheat uh, sort of know now. Oh, there are certain trends that we better not have. So uh, it, it's it's an evolutionary. Um, I, to be honest, I, I don't think there are others that are that are doing quite what we're doing. I mean, there are people that are consultants in this in the in the Business, but in terms of having the software to the point where we've got it, and as Tom will tell you, it's it's grown well beyond just the bid rigging software. It's construction management software. So we've certainly learned that you've got to evolve. You got to keep. You got to be creative. You got to keep going. You can't stand in one place because then you will be passed. Will. Right.
0: Um, so I, I assume that your business is much broader than just Florida now, right? I mean, who yes. are your clients? Are all over the country, all over the world, or? All over the country.
2: Okay. Uh, you know, we, one of the things we did back in the mid-80s when we were having the challenges is we were approached by AASHTO, which is the American Association of State and Highway Transportation Officials, and they're an umbrella agency for all state departments of transportation. And they were interested in our software because they wanted to promote better procurement across the country. And so we agreed at that time to provide our software to them, and they licensed the software out. To the states. So, right now we're serving about approximately 40 state departments of transportation with this bid rigging software, and, and it's unique. Uh, there are other companies back in the 80s that tried to develop what we did, but they just weren't successful in getting it right. And so, we don't really have any competition that I'm aware of for that type of software. But the interesting thing is, Jim said earlier, it requires a lot of data to analyze. Where does that data come from? other systems within the agency. So what we started doing in the mid 80s was helping agencies build those other systems to feed the data, to capture the data. And that's, so we now have a full suite of construction management software all the way from the planning stages of a project through the completion of construction. It lives within our software. And we also capture all of the bidding data, all the vendor information, the suppliers, the subcontractors, the materials, everything that goes into a job, winds up in the database uh, for us to be able to analyze. So you have a very
0: rich sort of broad and deep database where We certainly do. Are there are you scouting other opportunities for potential applications of, the, of this database or Well, or one if of you the You tell thing- me you'd have to kill me, right? Cuz I go and <laughs> I'd sell it to your competitors, right?
1: Uh, actually, one of the uh, surprises as far as our evolution to me has concerned we we early on did highways as tom said in in florida and you know i knew after that that there was a lot of cheating that was going on in that industry but i wondered you know is is it widespread what has in the consulting side of our business which is what i basically run we've found just about every industry that we've looked at not that there's all cheaters but there are pockets of cheating so I think what the way we've evolved is we're well beyond just applying it to, to highways.
0: Uh, all right, we've we've come to the part of the show where it's your chance to be sort of philosopher kings here. Uh, you know, you've got you've got more than forty years of experience um, coming out of academia, building, starting a small business, and building it to a very successful business. Jim, let's start with you. What what advice would you give to to any entrepreneur? Um, who's starting out, but also specifically to academics who have a great idea, and they say, I want to make a go of this in the market. Uh, you know, are, are there, are, Let's say, are there three things that they absolutely should do, and, and are there three things or any number of things <laughs> they should definitely not
1: do? Well, as far as what they should do is it, the, the, there will be a certain level of anxiety. Overcome that fear. Go for it. Uh, I could go on with trite expressions, um, but but uh, you know chase your dream. Assume that your idea is really a good one; it may not be, uh, and and that's sort of the, the other side of this. Expect the fact that there will be you can call them failures or dead ends uh, along the way. But chase your dream. You know, go if if you love just being teaching and doing research, that's fine. But if you've got an idea, uh, let expand on it. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so, Tom, we, when you joined. Uh, you were already well into your academic career, um, and you said you were approaching 40, right, when yes. you joined the company. So, this was your 38. So, uh, if you had failed, you couldn't have just gone and slept on your mom's couch, right? You had a family <laughs> by then, and right? So Kids. It's, it's a bit of a risk for you, which I think describes a lot of academics as sort of at the, nearing the height of their careers and then they decide to sort of give up their day job, so to speak, and mm-hmm. what was that like for you? Uh, and then is that something you would advise? <laughs> if you saw yourself today in, an, in the form of a professor, would you tell him, yep, do it? That's a good
2: question. Uh, I know my wife certainly wasn't thrilled when I told her <laughs> that I was going to leave teaching. We'll, we'll and, have and them help. on the next podcast to, to you know, truth and, check you. It You'll start doing this. I, I think one of the keys is you can't be risk adverse. Mm-hmm. And I guess from my upbringing and the different life experiences I had, I was always willing to sort of take a chance on an idea and, and see it through. And I always had enough confidence in, in what I could do that if it didn't work out, I felt that I would have opportunities to go back to teaching. And I love teaching, but even when I started teaching back in 1970, I said, there's going to come a point in time when I want to get out of the university academic environment and try something on my own. And you know, when I met Jim and and the stars sort of aligned, and I said, this is the opportunity I want to try. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, that's fine too.
0: Are you often asked to speak about it, your experiences or do you have people sort of knocking on your door asking for advice in terms of do I start a company or not or or do you just
1: not have time to do that? I certainly would be glad to talk to folks. I, yeah. and, and now we're 250 and we've got this. PR department that's pushing us to do Mm -hmm. the kind of thing we're doing today (laughs) Uh, so I I have a feeling we'll we'll be doing more of it and Uh and I like doing it because again to the extent we can share experiences that would help someone else uh, go along a similar path and take the take the chances as Tom just said uh, I I think we both like uh, like like doing this yeah I know I've had some interaction with the
2: innovation hub and back when David Day and Jane Muir were there, they invited me to come down and meet with some of the startup companies and talk to some of the young entrepreneurs and share some of the experiences, the good and the bad that we had and how we got started and how we stabilized as a company. So I guess, yes, it is exciting to talk to people who have these ideas and wanna try something and try to help them along that path to become successful.
0: And I know Infotech as a company has been very supportive of the innovation economy um, in, in Florida and particularly in Gainesville, but all, also broadly in the state, you know, sort of supporting that uh, those young on- entrepreneurs and young inventors and so on. And it's been a tremendous support. But I, I want to thank both of you for coming on the show today, Jim and Tom. Um, wish you the best of luck as uh, watching Infotech's continued success. And um, and hoping you will dispense that, that wisdom and experience because uh, I know there are a lot of folks in town who, who really benefit. So thanks thank very, you very much. much.
2: Well, Thank you. We really enjoyed it.
0: I'm Richard Miles. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Radio Cade. Please come back next week for another interview with an inventor or entrepreneur. Radio Cade would like to thank the following people for their help and support. Liz Gist of the
2: Cade Museum for Coordinating Inventor Interviews. Bob McPeak of Heartwood Soundstage in downtown Gainesville, Florida, for recording, editing, and production of the podcast and music theme. Tracy Collins for the composition and performance of the Radio Cade theme song, featuring violinist Jacob Lawson. And special thanks to the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida.